0: Hello and welcome to episode number 401 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell with Smart Bitches Trashy Books and with me today is Dr. Nicole Peeler. Dr. Peeler is the author of fantasy and a professor of popular writing at the Seton Hill MFA in popular fiction writing. Now we talk about so many things. This might be one of the episodes you listen to a few times because it's really inspiring and affirming. We talk about writing, teaching, romance, writing your own catnip, and we take considerable detours into vampires, sewing, hobbies, creativity that isn't monetized, fashion, goals, and how to learn to love writing again and again. I do want to note that this was recorded prior to the dark winter of RWA. This was also recorded uh, prior to the international quarantine, but... I know that creativity in any form is definitely getting me through the corn times. So I'm curious about you. What is your creative outlet? What are the things that you do that you revel in? I would love to know. You can email me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com or you can leave a message at 201-371-3272. I love hearing from you, especially when you tell me about what you do to make yourself feel better. And if you are thinking, hold on, Program in popular fiction writing. I didn't know this was a thing. Fear not, I will have links to everything, including Nicole's website, her Instagram, her newsletter, her writing on Medium, her free goal setting journal, if that's a thing you're interested in. Plus, links to all of the things we talk about and the books we mention as well. Those will be in the show notes. Guess where that is? SmartBitchesTrashyBooks dot com slash podcast. This episode is brought to you by Ritual, a daily multivitamin obsessively researched for women. Ritual is vegan-friendly, sugar-free, non-GMO, gluten-free, and allergen-free, and all of the sources for the nine nutrients inside are provided for you to read and research on your own. Ritual is designed to be an easy way to build a daily ritual. It's a subscription box of vitamins that will arrive on your doorstep, and your next bottle arrives just as you finish the last one. It's only a dollar per day to have your daily multivitamin delivered. The packaging is even thoughtful as well. There is a mint tab inside each bottle so that there's no weird aftertaste that you can sometimes get with multivitamins. I really appreciated that part. Ritual is offering you 10% off your first three months. You can fill in the gaps with essential for women by visiting ritual.com slash Sarah to start your ritual today. That's 10% off your first three months at ritual.com slash Sarah. That's S-A-R-A-H, by the way. And speaking of Sarah as a code... This episode is also brought to you by Native Deodorant. Native Deodorant is formulated without aluminum, parabens, or talc. It's vegan and never tested on animals, and it works. As I've mentioned, I have pretty sensitive skin, which freaks out at the slightest provocation, and deodorants are no exception to that. But this has been a marvelous experience. I really like the coconut vanilla scent, which I understand is their most popular, and I get why. And I know that several people on the Smart Bitches team love Native as well. You can try it risk-free. There's free shipping on every order and Native offers 30-day free returns and exchanges inside the USA. For 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code Sarah during checkout. That's 20% off nativedeodorant.com with promo code Sarah. S-A-R-A-H. Now, I have to say I find it kind of funny that my first name is the promo code because I grew up at a time when I think at one point there might have been four or five Sarahs in my class in elementary school. So I love that I get the Sarah promo code. (laughs) Like no other Sarahs, just me. (laughs) I do want to say a big, huge honking thank you, not actually honking, that would hurt your ears, to the Patreon community. And I have two compliments, which are so fun. To Mirandia B., the branches of your family tree when viewed at the correct angle spell absolute triumph and the leaves all point at your name. And to Sarah Y, also a Sarah with an H, hello, when your friends think of you, each of them relaxes a little more than usual because knowing you makes them feel safe, secure, and welcome. If you would like a compliment of your very own, have a look at patreon.com smartpitches. Each pledge keeps the show going each week, helps me make sure that every episode has a transcript. Pledges start at $1 a month. I have received so many new patrons in the past few weeks. Thank you so much. I am so honored to be keeping you company during what we call the quarantine times here. As I mentioned, I will have links to everything we talk about, and I will end the episode with an absolutely horrible joke. But for now, let's do this podcast. On with my interview with Nicole Peeler.
1: My name is uh, Nicole Peeler, and I'm a associate professor at Seton Hill University, where I direct the MFA in Writing Popular Fiction. Um, so we are the first and one of the largest uh, programs that does teach popular fiction. Most creative writing programs only teach literary, and we've been doing. You don't say. I know it's shocking, <laughs> um, and we've been doing it for twenty years, which is kind of amazing. Um, I'm also a writer and I've written a bunch of fantasy novels and just to be totally ornery and paradoxical, most recently I've been writing creative nonfiction, which is the opposite of fantasy. Um, And I'm loving both. Like they've kind of, in a really weird way, energized each other um, in a way that I wasn't expecting so, and I've also been freelancing with the creative nonfiction, which is really nice, as opposed to writing whole books, which is a painful process.
0: So what is creative
1: nonfiction? That is like essays about my life. So basically kind of memoir but it's not autobiography. Like I, you know, it's not like, here's the time I met Liza Minnelli. Um It's more <laughs> like, yeah, it's more like, and I've not met Liza Minnelli, by the way. Um, it's more like taking aspects of my life that are particular to me, but then writing them in a way that they're an essay. So it makes it universal. So mm-hmm. like, for example, I have one coming out this week, probably with Medium, who I've been writing for. And it's about like how I got into debt and how I'm getting out of debt. So it's my individual story about what happened to me, which is very unique um, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um but I gear it so that anyone who reads it can take something away from themselves. They're not just learning about me.
0: That's very cool. Thank you. So um, h- how does one teach romance writing? Like, what what are the courses like for that one? Because I, 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 I am a great fan of all genre fiction, as you know, right. but my greater passion is romance. And I know that you teach romance fiction, and I know that romance fiction writers are part of the program. Uh, how do, you, how, do you, how do you teach that?
1: Um, romance is absolutely a crucial part of our program. And we have the one of my faculty colleagues who actually created the program is um Dr. Lee McLean, who is a very prolific writer in the romance genre for Harlequin, um as well as in self-publishing. Mm-hmm. Um and to be honest, I mean I'll focus on romance, but for the most part, all of our genres like teaching genre writing is kind of similar across um so everyone needs to know the genre <laughs> um and write I mean
0: you can't just show up and be like I heard there's money to be made I will write some of these sex books and make bank yes exactly
1: and we do get that where we get a student who wants to write romance because they see it on you know the supermarket shelves and they're like well that must make a lot of money And then they're like, well, I'm going to write the romance though. That's going to be better than romance because like everyone will die at the end. Uh, "Hmm."
0: (laughs) I've met so many, so many. And I think it happens in every genre.
1: I mean, I remember when I was in graduate school and I went to graduate school for like for literature, like not creative writing. And so I was going to be a literary critic up until like literally I wrote my book. Like I was insisting, I was never going to be a creative writer. I was just a critic until I wrote a book. And then I was like, oh, well, shit, that happened. So can I swear? I would be delighted if you did. Great. Because um, it, it just pops out. Um, and I, my office mate was this guy who was, um, he was studying cultural studies. And he was just, <laughs> he had lots of ideas. And one of his ideas was he was like, he just turns to me and he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to finish my PhD and I'm going to get you know, a full-time teaching job, which by the way is like, Oh yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah. We're lucky when we do. So I was like, and I yeah. did get one by the way. So I was like one of the lucky few, but like at the time I was like, I don't know if that, I don't know if we should be like confident about this. And then he was like, well, and then to bolster my money, I'm just going to write some of those fantasy novels that sound, <gasps> I'll just whip out a couple of those every year. And at the time I was like, I don't think it's that easy. Dude. Yeah. And then like ironically, I went along and just like wrote one. But it was because I had like immersed myself in the genre my entire life.
0: Um I, there's there's a lot, I think, of writers who come into the genre and think, I wanna write the book. Either I wanna write this because I love it so much yeah. or I wanna write this because I'm not getting what I want. And I know my catnip, so I'm gonna write my catnip, which is what yeah. I did. Yeah. Um, and then and there's I really well it writing your own catnip. If your cat, if your if your tricks work on you, it's awesome. <laughs> Especially if the catnip,
1: like, like coming from a, like growing in a soil of love, I'm sending this metaphor too far.
0: Um, you know, because no, I it like can't this be, metaphor. I'm all about it. <laughs> it can't be the catnip. That's
1: like, I'm going to write romance so that it's not romance.
0: Yes. Everyone's going to die at the end. And I'm going to kill the dog too.
1: Yes, Exactly.
0: It's not so a real book unless you're absolutely emotionally devastated at the end.
1: Exactly. Because <laughs> <laughs> no one, everyone loves that. Um, so that's kind of the first place is for all of the genres, but especially with romance, we really root them in the genre. So they have to take rigs, readings in the genre, which are online courses And really think about what they're doing too. And, and this is important for a lot of students, look at how the genre, how the genres change and the reader expectations. And this is a huge thing in romance, right? So we have older students who come in having read those like great eighties romances who are like, I'm going to write about a barbarian woman, you know, who is raped by the very handsome man but then she loves them and we're like, whoa, <laughs> things have changed. So uh, yeah. Yeah. So, and that's a big thing. I mean, and obvi- I mean, that's a really obvious example of change, but like just issues of consent. We get this all the time. Like students will write things that for a newer, like for the, for their critique partners who are younger, you know, the critique partners who are younger are pointing out, like, this is a, th- like, this is non-consensual, basically. Like, you know, he, it's the hero that kind of does the whole, like, um,
0: force seduction thing.
1: Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. And the, like, basically stalking, kind of Edward cullen thing. No, um, thing. They point out, like, oh this isn't really what's done anymore. And that's like a really confusing conversation for some writers who are like, but this is romance. Like for them, it's very romantic. Um, And there, I don't think this has, I don't think we can answer this question for ourselves or for the genre. Um, But it's a really interesting, I think the readings in the genre courses are a really interesting space where these conversations kind of come to fruition. And it's really interesting to mediate those forum posts.
0: So what texts do you use in your classes? You mentioned one of the online courses, which is reading. Was it reading in the genre?
1: Yeah. So they take three different ones. And in romance, we have contemporary. That's one of the classes they can take. So contemporary romance, there's a classics romance. Um, So again, it it gets into those issues of, you know, what was great about the classics, what did the classics establish, and what are we moving away from in the classics? And then we have one on subgenres, which is obviously a really important class as well. Because there's mm-hmm. much, I mean, you know, there there'll be a sweet one in that class or an inspirational, and then there'll be like an erotic one. Um and that's challenging too, because romance readers often are very siloed in their subgenre.
0: Yes. We like what we like and we stay with what we like.
1: Yeah. And they haven't
0: necessarily
1: read outside and can actually be quite offended by things that are outside of their genre. And yet we're all on the same team as writers. So that's always an interesting conversation, too, to get people to kind of respect the subgenres that are in their genre and yet are actually kind of antithetical to their way of life.
0: Yeah. And it's important to understand what other parts of the genre are doing because ultimately don't you find they all influence each other? Absolutely. Yeah. So what are some of the reactions that students have to the uh, reading in the genre courses? Have you had any students be like, okay, so uh, I'm going to read everything this writer has ever written. I'll see you next year. Mm -hmm.
1: Definitely. And oftentimes I do discover... Subgenre, they think they're writing one thing, but they're really writing another. I think a lot of them also come up against what we were talking about earlier, that idea of they're not really writing romance, they're really writing something else with a really strong romantic arc.
0: Ah. Yeah. So they also have to figure out precisely what genre they're in not only to strengthen the structure of what they're writing, but also to meet reader expectations for the book that they're eventually hoping to publish. Exactly. Exactly. And
1: sometimes... Piece of cake. Yeah. Well, and sometimes (laughs) it's like, it's actually like, well, you've obviously written an urban fantasy and not a paranormal romance. And then it becomes a question of like, which, which like group of shelves do you want to be in? Um, Which is selling at the time? Mm -hmm. So that gets into a conversation about marketing. Cause that's also... One thing that our program is really I think good about, and obviously it has to be because we are writing commercial fiction as a program, but just talking about the marketplace and talking about you know how to move things around um, in your mind, you know how to move your plot around to make it fit various shelves um depending on where the marketplace is at when you actually finish it,
0: yeah, also, how would you define? if you if you can this is sort of on the fly how would you define the difference between urban fantasy and paranormal romance to someone who is not fully fluent in either
1: great um for me it's all about what can you if you took out the romance would the book still hold
0: Mm, yeah that's i've heard that used as a as a way of describing erotic romance if you took out the erotic storyline does the book fall apart? If yeah. it does, then that's an erotic romance. Otherwise, if, if you can take out all the sex and the story's still there, you just have a it's really, really sexy romance. romance. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's an important distinction for readers, for marketplace, for shelving, for what's being bought, for what's popular. Yeah. These are oh, all yeah. important things.
1: You know, we do do the readings courses and that's really important to the program. But the big thing that we do is our students work one-on-one with first one mentor and then a second mentor. Um, usually people who are well published in that genre and they have to finish the actual book. And that's the big thing. Um, you don't really know what you've written till you've written the last page. <laughs> and that seems really obvious, but it's amazing how people start out with an idea and a synopsis or even a table of contents outline kind of thing. But what they actually get to at the end is very different. And that's where I think you can start to see those distinctions. Um, where someone you know thought they were writing kind of a normal romance, but actually did write an erotic romance that maybe doesn't have enough sex. right? Um, so that's where you can have that conversation of like, actually, this is an erotic romance. Like if you strip out the sex, it doesn't hold together. So you need to beef up those sex scenes if you want to hit that market. Or you need to add something else
0: mm-hmm. to get
1: a more mainstream romance.
0: What have student reactions to the courses been like? Have the have the people who have gone through the MFA gone on to publish and and have they or have they gone on to teach? Because I know MFA is the highest degree you can get in writing fine arts or in, in writing arts. Like you, there's no doctorate, is there? I don't think there's a
1: There DFA. is. There are a few programs that have created a PhD. Um, I don't. Necessarily recommend those for complicated reasons. Mm -hmm. Not that I don't think the individual programs are good. It's just the way hiring works in academia. Um, You can, if you are applying for a pure creative writing job, you can do it with an MFA. The only time we would ask for a PhD is if you're wanting to. If if we want you, it's like my job required a PhD in literature because mfa is only part of my duties um so you're better off getting a phd in something like rhetoric and comp or literature and being a writer if that's the kind of job you want so anyway it gets very complicated um and there are phd programs um but they're rare and i don't that's a lot of schooling for something that i don't know if you need to get hired
0: um, right. Cause eventually you need to get a job with which to pay back those student loans. Yeah. That's the only
1: reason you'd get a PhD. Like a lot of our students do the MFA just because they struggle to finish a book.
0: Mm-hmm. So they've
1: written lots of first chapters. They've maybe written, or they have maybe written a rough draft and didn't know what to do with it. Um, and they want to kind of evaluate, elevate, <laughs> elevate, elevate, <their laughs> elevate writing. Anyway, um, So we do have actually our romance is one of our most pro is one of our most successful alumni. um, Some of our most successful alumni come out of our romance program. So uh, uh, Priscilla Olivares, she's one of our alums. Tracy Douglas. No kidding. Yeah, Tracy Douglas. Um, way back in the day, Susan Mallory actually did our program, but she was well published before she did it, so we can't take credit right. for her success. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, we've had a ton of success stories in rom- romance. Anna Zabo, she's one. No of kidding. The programs, yeah. So, I think that the nice the nice thing about romance is a lot of our students come into the program from RWA, so they've they're already in a really professional mindset, which is half the battle. Right. And then, you know, we just take all of that professionalism and hard work that they've already had inculcated into them by RWA. And we just like, you know, give them some more tools. Um, And then they are still in RWA, RWA the entire time they're in the program. So, you know, we're introducing them to agents and, things like that and helping them with query letters, but they're also going to RWA events and meeting agents. And so
0: that's kind of a perfect
1: combination.
0: It is because one is focused on the business side and some of the craft, and then you're focused on the craft side and some of the business. Exactly. So um, I want to ask you about vampires. Yes. Okay. I So I follow you on Instagram, which sounds like such a creepy thing to say, but I love following people who do neat shit and travel and uh, you do both. Yeah. And I love your pictures from your vampire conference. Yeah. You run a conference on vampires. Oh, please tell me everything about it. This yeah. is so cool. <laughs> well, I
1: can't take conference. I can't take credit for the entire conference. That is a brainchild of these two absolutely lovely wackadoo Welsh men who also do like the biggest... Elvis Convention in Wales. Like they're just insane and fun and they're great people. So they started this International Vampire Art and Film Festival. And we were brought in for a couple years of it to run the academic track. So my colleague and I created a call for papers, and Seton Hill was lovely and generous enough to sponsor us going to. Transylvania, of all places, which is highly ironic because we're also a Catholic school. <laughs> so it was like, can we go invest, you know, for, to Transylvania for vampires? Um, to, I and, can see
0: no reason why those yeah, things we to have, didn't match up. We had to
1: act, ask an actual nun for the money, which was, was lovely because <laughs> i probably. But it, it, was, <laughs> it was like, there's times when I'm like, my life is very strange. Um, and that was one of them. But yeah, so we just uh, put up a call for papers for this fabulous um, conference and we picked papers of people that were willing to go all the way out to Transylvania, which was a surprising number. I mean it's funny it's one of those things where you we were like oh I really don't know if anyone will do this because it's just a lot of
0: money and yeah it's one thing to submit a paper proposal is another thing to be like and I'm going to Transylvania yeah
1: um but we had a sur- like a shockingly robust, um, number of papers that were submitted and pretty much everyone, especially the first year, pretty much everyone who got accepted went, which was also surprising That's so cool. all over the world. And they were, we were all like just people who really loved vampires. Um, so it was amazing. I mean, Romania is one of the best places I visited like, okay, I'm obsessed with vampires and like a number and I'm obsessed with Transylvania on a number of crazy levels. so when I was really young, I read um like twelve or thirteen. I read those historical Dracula books by Radu Florescu, um and Raymond McNally, which were all about that region and how politically insane it was and how Vlad Sepesh came out of that. just miasma of violence and just political fuckery and like, you know, it was all over religion and like all of these things that were supposed to be, you know, to my child like mind, were supposed to be good things. I was like, wait, yeah. these can be used to wage war. And the person that like impales a hundred thousand people becomes like a hero. Um, so I was just obsessed with these books and Vlad the Impaler as one is. And obviously then I read Dracula and like I loved that. Um so it was kind of my it was definitely like a bucket list trip for me and i got to do it twice which was amazing and romania is just absolutely gorgeous um i mean bram stoker writes about that and he never actually went to transylvania but he read copious you know all the various um kind of victorian lavish travel guides of these places um so he used those as references, but they're right. I mean, it's just stunningly beautiful. And then, so you kind of look out the train window when you're going from Bucharest to Sikishwara, which is in Transylvania. And it's just fertile and lush and gorgeous. And when you look up and there's these terrifying mountains that are covered in fog and they're definitely where something evil comes. Um, uh. So it's really a fascinating place. And then the app, like the actual... Conference was in Sigishwara where uh, Vlad Tepes was born. And it is just, it's a medieval citadel. It's just the loveliest little place. The food is incredible. There's not any processed food really. So you come back to America and everything tastes like plastic for a week.
0: (laughs) Oh man. Yeah.
1: It's amazing. I can't, I really can't recommend going to Romania high enough. I know that that's not on most people's travel lists, but I would highly, highly recommend it. And I think Dacre Stoker, Bram's nef, grandnephew, I believe is the relation. I think he does like vampire tours that I am all about and really want to do
0: <laughs> in the future. Now, I also, as I mentioned, follow you on Instagram. And I have noticed that you have been taking sewing lessons yeah. and creating your own clothes. Yeah. And this is this is amazing to me for two reasons. One, you live in my hometown. Yes. So I look around in the background and I'm like, I know that's Pittsburgh, but where the fuck is that? What happened to that building? It's in morningside. Yeah, and I nothing looks familiar yeah. anymore because Pittsburgh has changed so yeah. much. It's it because that's what that's what happens when you move away from your hometown. Well, it's um, changed so much. Oh my finished. gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Did you move there before Bakery Square had condos across from it? Back when Reisenstein Middle School was there? Yes, that was my middle school. Oh my gosh! And I and we we brought our kids to Pittsburgh because you know Kennywood yeah. is the best and we got a like a, a room with points. I think there's a Marriott yeah. in Bakery Square, and we got there and I'm like. Where the hell is my middle school? Where did it go? Why are there multicolored condos where my middle school was? What happened here? Yeah, yeah. I was unprepared for how much has changed. So when I look in the background of your pictures, I'm like, I know that I know that place. What? Wh- when was there a Whole Foods there? Yeah. What? Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So a, I get to see, you know, how this place that I grew up in has changed, but also. You're doing dope shit. Oh, thank you. Oh, it's so cool. What have you made and what have you learned?
1: I So I started sewing because I really wanted a hobby that wasn't – like I didn't really have a hobby. I had writing, but that's not a hobby.
0: Um, No, that's slightly different. Yeah. and I'm in the same position as you. This is part of why I find this so fascinating. Yeah.
1: And so I really – so my friend, Jay Wells, who you probably know, she has been painting – Um, and I just loved it. Like every time she would post a painting, I was like, oh my God. And, you know, even when she first started and they were like, you know, like definitely like, and she's gotten really, really good actually. Like even when she first started and they were just kind of like these really bright, crazy things. Um, and they're still bright and crazy, um, which I love, but, um, I would just be like, oh my gosh, I love that you're doing this. I love that you're doing something for yourself. That's not connected to writing. Um, And it's not monetized. Like, Mm -hmm. I hate how in our culture, like, everything has to be monetized. And we're encouraging, like, our youth to, like, see that as the goal of anything that you pick up. Like, you know, you should be able to make money from that. And if you can't, you should not do it, right? And Jay actually had that conversation, I guess, with her. She told me she had that conversation with her instructor because he was like, maybe if you tone down the colors a little bit, you could sell these. And she was like, shut your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) I do not need another thing ruined by like the insertion of capitalism. Thanks. Um, So that's what I wanted from sewing. And my friend, I'm really lucky. My friend Aaron opened up this gorgeous shop, firecracker fabrics and next to the shop and kind of a part of the shop, but it's actually a separate business is this place called cut and sew studio where they teach you to sew. Um, And for years I was like literally years I was going into Aaron's shop and just fondling everything in like a creepy way and being like <laughs> hey, I'm gonna sell and she was like she kept telling me she's like don't because it's you know like it's you don't need another thing kind of you know like I know how busy you are um and it's kind of addictive so don't even start so when I was on sabbatical I did start because I did have the time and it's just been so great. Like, it's so great to make something. And most of my clothes are janky. Like, I've made some dress. I made a dress. I made. Um, I love the dress you thank made. Thank you. I'm making another I one. think it looks so good that's on you. That's like crazy. Um, and you. I've made a lot of uh, shirt number ones, which, if you're a part of the sewing community, you know, that's like the thing everyone starts on. It's like a kind of a really. Basic, easy to sew, but super cute shirt. I made a dress number one. Um, Anyway, I've just really loved it. And it's taught me so much about my body and fashion. And it's made me kind of re narrate the like shitty voice I had in my head that was always like, when I would try something on and it wouldn't look good, I would be like, it just doesn't fit because you're too big. Like, that was like my constant reiteration. Yeah. Like, I'm just wrong. I'm too big. My boobs are too big. My blank, blah, blah, blah. Like, something's just wrong. And one of my teachers, both of my teachers are great. There's Catherine, who owns Cut and Sew, and then Brad, who's one of her instructors. And Catherine's just very, like, delicate. Like, she you knows everything's very delicately put, she's very diplomatic. And Brad is more just like, oh no, no. So like, like I pulled out a pattern and I was like, Brad, I'm going to make this. And he's like, no, you're not. And he was like, that one, like you can never wear a dolman sleeve because you've got like beautiful big boobs. And I was like, oh, and then I looked at it and I was like, every dolman sleeve I've ever tried on has looked like terrible. Like there's always
0: a a sideways awning on your chest. And there's
1: like a giant Uh folds that like, I basically create my own, um, dart. Um yep just because the fabric like falls over but it looks terrible because it's just like kind of hanging there like a flap.
0: I am I am with yeah. you in the large chest department and uh I had I was a bridesmaid earlier this year and my sister-in-law was kind enough to be like here's the designer and here's the color pick whatever style you want. And I went to a dress shop that was filled with women who sound like your sewing instructor who were like yeah, no, that style would be terrible yeah. on you. And the, the fault is the style. Yes. Not you need to match yeah. your body to the right style. Um, and they were like, let me show you an example. So they brought me this dress that looked fine, but it had a ruffle right under the collarbone, mm-hmm. which basically created mm-hmm. a giant, giant shop front awning right. on my chest. Right. Like, oh, so this whole ruffle trend, not for yeah. me. Nope, not for you. But this, this is going to work. I love the idea that you're learning what styles are for you and it's not your fault. Yeah,
1: because that would happen to me every season when like a new fashion came out. Like sometimes I would try it on and I'd be like, oh, my God, like I am because, you know, the opposite would work, too. Like I would just be like, oh, my God, I am like well-sized suddenly, right? Like this looks great. But then usually it would be something like a ruffle or whatever. And I would try it on. and I'd be like, well, now I'm wrong. I'm just wrong. My body's wrong. And no, it was just these different fashions. And most, and there's only like a few different things you can actually do with a shirt, for example. Um, so once you can identify like what works on you, it doesn't matter what like new iteration it is, you know, not even to try it. Um, so mm-hmm. like, right. And, and, the irony of all of like learning to sew is that, and this should not be the point, but I've actually become really good at online ordering finally. Um, because like, I'll look at something and be like, Oh my God, that's adorable. And then I'll look at the sleeve and I'll be like, noops, like that will look like crap on me. And then I look at like another thing. And I'm like, okay, there's a raglan. I can do raglan. And I, it arrives and it's perfect.
0: So what are you making now sewing wise? What are you working on? I am making this totally
1: bonkers and very late. I was, it was supposed to be finished by now, but getting back to work means I have uh, not as much time to sew, but I'm making a Dia de los Muertos dress. (gasps) Nice. Yes. With this insane fabric. Um, It just has giant like painted heads. So that's the skirt. And then there's a turquoise bodice and like a black kind of band. Um, so it's super fun and I'm, it's totally janky cause I'm learning and like, I'm doing all this, like I'm making like a, like inverted bodice thing that I've never made before with like a ton of darts, which I've never made. So they're all over the place and it wasn't the best pattern for me. It was kind of a boxy pattern. Mm-hmm. And again, this I didn't know, um, most pattern makers kind of make what they would wear. It's just like, you know, what we're talking about with books, like we write the books we would want to read. Um, so they... So this woman just makes really boxy patterns. So like we've had to kind of really like, it's like a Franken pattern at this point. We've had to mutilate it to get it to fit like more of an hourglass. Um, But I've learned so much, but it's super janky but that's part of the fun of sewing is like everyone is so amazed that you made it. And then you're just like, if you could see the inside of this thing,
0: (laughs) which is also, which is also like writing because I look back at stuff I've written and been like, I would like to change this. I'd like to fix that. Uh, yeah, I could do this better. And someone's like, Oh my God, you wrote a book Yeah, and did it more than once. Yeah. And I think that that's part of the fun of
1: the hobby is like having something that really doesn't matter. That just fills me with pride. Like, like, I wear these like, I'll wear these like super simple like shirts that I've made. And half the time people aren't even like really look at the pattern. They're looking at the fabric. Cause there's such great fabrics on like for sale now. That's part of the reason I learned to sew is to use these crazy fabrics, but they'll like, they'll be like, Oh my God, that's so cute. And I'll just like crow. I made it like <laughs> with much glee. Um, and meanwhile, it, it's like for someone who like, you know, for like one of the seamstresses working in like an actual factory, it would literally take them five minutes. And I'm like, I made this. And it took me like seven days, but that's fine. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. I can just be it, proud of it.
0: It's still a book. It doesn't matter if you wrote it in a week or six months or a yeah. year, you yeah. still wrote a book You yeah. still made a shirt. That's so cool.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's why the short pieces I've been writing for medium, the online platform, mm-hmm. um, And that's why these short pieces have been really nice because I love writing novels, but they just takes really long. And in the meantime, you kind of, it's like, you forget that you're a writer, even though you're writing every day, like there's something about like seeing something published that kind of reminds you that, Oh yeah, I'm a writer. And like getting, um, and you know, for me, like as a commercial writer, like getting a little check in the mail once a month is great too. um, and I think the sewing does the same thing. It's like I for I think we can forget that we it's okay, especially as women, we're told like you shouldn't have an ego. Like I think it's good to do things that burnish your ego, right? Um, even if it, you know, if it's painting a colorful painting or making a, a shirt that people admire, I think that that's a part of creation that we tend to uh, ignore, but it's actually really
0: important. It's also, I think, important to examine, because when you sew, you examine how your clothes are being made, which then yeah. might cause you to question, how are the other clothes that I'm wearing being made? Who is making them? Like a six-year-old somewhere? Yeah. Is this, how is this produced? Is it produced in a way that's that's damaging or is it yeah. produced in a way that's helpful? Like that, it's all part of a larger series yeah. of questions. Yeah, Absolutely. What are you working on writing-wise? I know you mentioned you're writing for Medium. Mm -hmm. What else are you working on? Are you also writing more fiction?
1: I am. I've been working on just kind of a total labor of love project. I don't know if anyone will ever want to buy it. It's like um, a sort of super ambitious Pullman-esque fantasy, which I guess is YA in the way that Pullman's, like His Dark Materials are YA. Mm -hmm. Um, The Bloody Chamber or like uh, Bluebeard meets portal fantasy. Oh, yeah. So I'm really excited about it. And um, I'm just, I'm just enjoying writing. I feel like the medium pieces have kind of taken some pressure off myself in terms of like, oh, I need to be publishing because I'm publishing. Um, And so I'm just really writing what I want to be writing right now, and not really thinking about the market. And um,
0: so we'll see what happens. That makes it fun again, much
1: like sewing. Yeah, it does make it fun again. And I think, I know, I think my project is strong because I'm not thinking about whether or not it will sell. And I'm obviously not writing something that won't, that can't sell, right? I'm not being that extreme in it, but I'm definitely writing something that I'm like, I'm really thinking, like, what do I want to be writing? Not like, what do I think will sell now? That can feel kind of, uh, radical at times (laughs) because I think yeah especially at a certain point in your career you're kind of put you I think I put so much pressure on myself to like write what will sell write what will sell write what will sell and I think I kind of lost the purpose of writing Mm
0: -hmm. sometimes the the purpose of of writing can be to enjoy that you made it much like making a shirt Yeah. yeah exactly exactly and making
1: something that I mean, you would like, want to read or you would want to wear, or you would want to hang on your wall.
0: Yeah, it can be like, it, it can be entirely for you. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't, it, it, writing is a business and it is an industry, but it doesn't always have to be for profit. Yeah. It's okay that it's not. And I don't know if that message gets shared enough.
1: Yeah. And that's, I mean, we always tell our students do not quit your day job it's great if that's your goal and it's great if you're able to achieve that goal. But I think that's a really fickle mistress. I mean, publishing is a fickle mistress and and latching your livelihood onto something that you just took creative pleasure in is another layer of sort of danger. It is. Yeah. And some people love the hustle of the like freelance lifestyle. one of our you know we the last time we did um the vampire festival chris golden and tim lebin were some of our guests and they you know they're working freelance writers who are amazing novelists and also doing lots of things with tie-ins and doing lots of different things to make money writing mm-hmm. and you know it works for them and they love it um so there's all different models that you can aspire to but i think each model has its pros and cons for sure,
0: yeah, and it's it's up to the individual to figure out what's the model that works for them exactly, but I think not, it's not all one size fits all, yeah, much like sewing, yeah, yeah, exactly. um because I think
1: I think there is an assumption that the goal has to be to write full time, and I think that that's something to definitely um, examine whether or not that's actually the case for your individual circumstances.
0: Yeah. The, the default message of this must be profitable. This must be everything you must, you must d- pursue the job that is your, is your passion, yeah. um, can be very damaging. And I say that as someone who made a job out of her hobby. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't always recommend it. I adore what I do and I, I love my life and I love what I do and I am mm-hmm. extremely fortunate, but I also have a number of support mechanisms in place, right. not the least of which is being married. Right. And, uh it it can be very very hard like i i was doing an interview with a with a self published author this week and i said well the good news is you're in charge and the bad news is you're in charge right right well and i feel
1: a lot of responsibility as you know it's it's like with teaching like i yeah have a tenure track i have tenure i got from the beginning i i got the tenure track full time jobs that were really rare um And I, you know, so I, I'm constantly counseling students, like not to do what I've done. And I remember when my professor in college did that, I said, I wanted to be a professor and she goes, oh, you should probably like, you're super, like, she's like, I think you would be great at this, but it's just really hard to get a job. So you you might want to look into law. Right. Mm Um, And I'm irony. Yeah. (laughs) I'm kind of doing the same thing constantly with my students. Cause, and it is that balance. Like, like I have a responsibility to articulate that you, that like students might not be able to get the things that I got because times are constantly changing, right? The market constantly changes, the publishing market constantly changes. You know, we, we see that with self-publishing now, like, It changes hourly. Yes. Like, so people who are making really creditable salaries, basically from self-publishing have had to like re-examine as, you know, Amazon changes its algorithm. So I think no matter where you are, like the goal should be to be as like flexible and willing to change your expectations as Mm -hmm. things change within the marketplace.
0: Yeah. And, and that when you start a project, you can't count on that still being something that's popular when you're done, yeah. which is really scary. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. So what books are you reading right now that you want to tell everyone about?
1: Well, the things that I've, so I've been reading, um, obviously Philip Pullman's new, uh, his dark materials, uh, books. Um, I love, 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 love the Greta von Helsing series by Orbit. It's like urban fantasy with a great romance arc. Um between Is that
0: the one where she's a
1: doctor? Yes. I love that. I
0: so- loved it.
1: Yes. Like, and the third one just came out, and I think that's the end of the series. And they're just super sweet. They're like total
0: nerd like Easter egg. They're- yeah, they're they're paranormal nerd Easter egg books. Yeah. Like there's so many references hidden in there. Yeah. So like
1: her romantic interest is Lord Ruthven, or I'm sorry, Lord uh, Varney from yeah. *The Vampire*. Like so funny. Um, so I love those. I I read this. Cra- it's literary, but it's insane, and I loved it so much. It was called Hollow Kingdom* by Kira Frank. I think it's her name. I think I got that wrong. Um, but it's Hollow Kingdom, and it's it's a <laughs> it sounds so insane, but it's the zombie apocalypse from the perspective of a pet crow.
0: Oh yeah, um, one of my one of my team, Carrie, reviewed it and okay. said it was adder- absolutely delightful, it, utterly strange, can be violent, totally delightful. It's
1: so delightful. Um, so I adored that. So. I would highly recommend those two. And then I think the best book I read, I've read in the last year was Milkman, um, which is super literary, not um, definitely kind of ambitious, an ambitious read because it's very Joycean and how it's um, worded. It's almost a stream of consciousness and there's no like names, like everyone is. what they are so it's like brother-in-law or and the milkman is like that's his kind of nickname so it's and i can't remember who wrote it i'm terrible i should have written it down um anyway milkman that is the that is just one of the best books that i think i've ever read in my entire life and it kind of it's the book that i've read in the last year and i can't stop thinking about
0: i love books like that they give you like a brain hangover yes
1: yeah that is my favorite really amazing
0: Well, thank you so much for, for, for taking the time to talk to me. Is there anything else that you want to add or mention? Um, no, you want to drop a plug for your program? Feel free.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you want information on Seton Hill and our program, um, which I highly recommend, it's a great program. It's, um, just, uh, Google Seton Hill writing popular fiction and you should find it. Um, and you can find me at nicolepeeler.com and you can find links. If you do want to read, you can find links to my books and you can also find friend links to my essays on medium. So that gets you past the metered paywall, um, so that you can read, uh, any of the essays that I've written and I've written, I've written a couple on writing. If you're writers, um, and a couple on love, if you're, you know, a human being who cares about love,
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, why not? Exactly. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you to Nicole Peeler for hanging out with me. If you would like to find out more about her writing, about her program at the uh, Seton Hall MFA in popular fiction writing, you will find all the links in the show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com. You can find Nicole online at Nicole Peeler and on Instagram at Nicole Peeler as well. Thank you again to our Patreon community for supporting the show. Every pledge means so very much, helps me keep the show going, helps me make sure that every episode receives a transcript. I am deeply appreciative to each of you for making sure that every episode is accessible to everyone. If you'd like to join our Patreon community, have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches. Every week I end the episode with a really bad joke, and uh, this week is no exception. This, uh, this joke is in honor of the fact that I, if you read the site, you know about this. I subscribe to Bridge Box and have been watching old reruns of The Vicar of Dibley with Don French. And it is among my favorite old sitcoms. It's so funny, but there's a particular episode that I love the most. And if you hear this joke and you know the show, bet you know which episode this is. So, <clears throat> are you ready for a terrible joke? Because this is really bad. Did you hear the rumor about butter? Yeah, the, the rumor about butter, you shouldn't spread it. <laughs> it's so dumb. So <laughs> it's really terrible, right? It's really quite bad. On behalf of Nicole Peeler and everyone here, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a wonderful weekend. Stay safe. And I will see you back here next week. Smart Podcast Trashy Books is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find outstanding podcasts to listen to at frolic.media slash podcasts.